I don't know if I was in a rush, rushing away from something or trying to run towards something, but everything just, you know, was seemed rushed and, and trying to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible to try and get somewhere. And I think my biggest lesson is just patience and, you know, you've got your whole life. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. A few decades ago, the classic French bistro and French cooking techniques were a key feature of the Australian culinary landscape. But as it evolved, influences from Asia and the Middle East came to the fore and in some ways left French in its wake. But many of our great chefs and the foundation of much cookery in Australia have relied on French techniques. How important has that been in the development of Australia's culinary cred? Justin North is an award-winning chef and restaurateur and the owner of Concept Hospitality. Justin, how are you going? Good, mate. Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Mate, it's great to have you on on the show. Cuisine has changed so much in the last couple of decades and you've been a big part of the Australian culinary landscape, but French um, cooking was so important a couple of decades ago and a real key feature of your career. What sort of impact has has that had, do you think, on Australian cooking? Yeah, I think European cooking in general has had a, a massive impact on, on a lot of cuisine, but particularly this side of the globe, I think, um, with, I guess, youngsters learning, that's pretty much the only way you learn through going to TAFE and Polytech and that sort of stuff is, is learning basic French cuisine. So I think it's always sort of been at the very root of it. And I think if you, you know, using those good techniques as a base to your cookery and then sort of springboarding from there. So I think it's had a, a massive role and maybe not always French as the flavors have been, you know, popular or in vogue or in fashion or whatever, but certainly the, a really good solid European technique and understanding flavor and taste and produce, I think has, has always been, you know, has, has underpinned, everything we do. We can talk about the early days and how important that was for your career, but um, your cuisine has changed so much over the last couple of decades in line with how much our food offering has changed as well. How how have you felt with that evolution with the influence of so many different cuisines? Yeah, I guess I've always been quite a curious cook. And I think a lot of that came from when I was working with Raymond Blanc. He was sort of because he was sort of unbound, he was completely self-taught. Um, so he was sort of very, very curious about different cuisines and, and just always trying to question what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I think that was quite infectious um, to me. But when I started, I was very much sort of rooted in traditional regional French cookery. But I think as I, you know, like when I was young, I used to love going on research trips to all around France and learning there. But I guess as that evolved, then, you know, I'd start to go to Spain a little bit more and then particularly around Asia and, and then just fell in love with Japan. So I guess, although it was, my cuisine was always very deeply rooted in French technique, it did evolve into a much lighter, fresher sort of style of cuisine. Uh, you originally from New Zealand. Take us back to the early days. When when did you first get interested in food? It was interesting. I mean, I guess we when I sort of grew up, we had a traditional household. You know, there's just mum, dad, myself, and my brother. And you know, there wasn't any necessarily romantic stories of you know 
picking juicy figs off the trees and all that sort of stuff. But I guess what was common then was to have a small backyard and, you know, more through necessity than anything else, you would grow your own vegetables and, you know, dad would always sort of be out in the garden and he would dig up spuds and carrots and swedes and stuff for dinner and give them a wash and mum would cook them and, you know, it all sounds very trendy if it was now, but, (laughs) you know, back then it was just sort of a way of life. So I guess we're very connected to it. And, And I think above that, one of the most important lessons I think that I really hold on to big today was the importance of the dinner table. But no matter what was going on, we'd always stop, you know, and sit down together and have dinner. Um, and even to this day, I, I make sure I do that with the kids and that, you know, as a, as a matter of course, no matter what, it's just so important, you know, and um, I think that had a big sort of impact. And then when I was, I guess, at school, I was very, very sort of creative and loved painting and drawing and, you know, I sort of, I was probably more leaning towards the creative side of schooling than, you know, and then I think I left because um, I just sort of had enough, but I'd done my school certificate, but I was only like 15, but there was a member mates so of this course come up at the local Polytech. Uh, it was a six month hospitality course and we thought, you know, we're like 15 or whatever. So we thought hospitality, there'd be loads of girls and whatnot there. So <laughs> we sort of just, you know, it was just an excuse to leave school really. But then when we did the kitchen part of the training, it was just, there was this massive connection to the creativity and the art that I did at school. And I was just like, wow. And then just sort of fell in, in love with it um, from there. Yeah. But it wasn't, I, I reckon it was more probably a job then, but, I moved to sort of Wellington to do my apprenticeship at a hotel when I was, I think, 15, 16. And it was probably then I started to talk to more sort of serious chefs and start to read. And I guess one of the earlier books I probably had was an old copy. Well, it was a new copy at that time, but of um, White Heat. Um, but I didn't even have the the beautiful, you know, it's got black and white images of all the action shots and then you turn it, it goes into the amazing, colourful, beautiful images of a food. I didn't even have that. I have like a little novel size hard copy with no pictures in it. <laughs> so I was like, so I wasn't even inspired by the beauty of it. It was more just a story. And I was reading about these guys like Raymond Blanc and Nicola Dennis and Pierre Kaufman and Rue Brothers and Mossyman and all these incredible stories in there. And I was just like, man, I have to have some of this. And, you know, that was, I was a kid and I think that's what really inspired me. And I really wanted to go and just see what it was like to work in some of these, you know, some of the greatest kitchens of the world to see how far you could actually take, you know, cooking. And, um, I think thankfully I got some good advice actually by the head chef at that stage, David Price. Um, this is back in the early nineties, you know, he's, he's sort of, his wise words were don't just go straight to Europe and try and get into one of those kitchens. Cause you'll just end up in the corner, you know, picking herbs and you won't really learn anything, you know, said so try and get a little bit more advanced at your craft first. So when you go there, you're actually an asset to the kitchen and you'll learn a lot more. Um, so I was like 19 and I remember looking at Gourmet Traveler and there was, um, Dittmar Sawyer, I had just opened the Park Lane, and at that time, it was the, I think, the biggest, most expensive hotel ever built in Australia, which I think it's Sheraton on the Park now. And, you know, Dittmar was sort of revered as a chef at that time, and I was just like, man, I have to go and work there. But David Price uh, was good mates of Sean Connolly, and Sean Connolly was working there. 
So I ended up getting a job in Sydney wow. with Sean back in. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, a small world. But the funniest thing is when I so I, moved, I was 19, so I left New Zealand, finished my apprenticeship, arrived in Sydney, um, and then I was a couple of weeks in at the Park Lane working at Gecko Restaurant. I don't know if you remember that back in the day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then I'm like, I, I wanted to meet this Dittmar Sawyer fellow and this Liam Tomlin guy I'd heard so much about. So, I, you know, I was asking, and, and, and they'd left. They weren't there anymore. They'd gone to open Level 41. So I'd, so I'd moved over, got the job with the guys I wanted to work for, and then found out they, they weren't there. So, But it was good, though, because <laughs> I ended up um, – it was a good detour because I ended up spending some nice time with um, Sean in the kitchen and Olivia Marsar at the time. And then after about nine months, Brasier Cassis opened. And that was uh, um, the sort of first time I'd really heard about Liam Tomlin. And that was his sort of first venture stepping out, you know, from as a sous chef into being a real head chef. Um, so I applied and, and got into work with him. But I was very upfront when I sort of had the interview. I just said, look, I'm coming here for one year and not a day longer because I want to get a reference from you and I want you to push me as hard as you can <laughs> and then I'm going to Europe and he said okay and he just nurtured me and pushed me every single day to try and get me sort of you know match fit or in good condition to work in some of those extreme kitchens in Europe and he was just an incredible uh, mentor and father figure to me back then as a young kid you know I think when I went there I'd probably been cooking for four or five years but it was like starting all over again it was so intense and, that, you know, it was brutal. You ended up coming back to work with Liam Tomlin, but before that you headed off to Europe. What was it like stepping into the kitchen of, like, uh, Ramon Blanc after reading about him as a young apprentice? Yeah, it was intimidating. I mean, look, I, I actually, it's funny because when I worked at Cassis, I actually worked with, uh, that's when I first met Matt Kemp. And Matt was heading back to Europe uh, as well to work at the Square. Um, so we ended up going back to the UK together and then we hung out for a few weeks we actually went to um it was sean connolly's wedding and stuff there and then we had enough playtime so that we thought we have to get some jobs so matt got the job at the square and then i, I had my list and i'd hand i've still got them i'd, I'd hand written uh all these letters to all those guys i talked about that is <clears throat> yeah and then but anyway, so I, I, I picked up the phone um, and I called Le Manoir. was the first on my list and they said, come out um, and do a trial. So it's a two-day trial. So I had to go out there and cook for Raymond Blanc uh, and sit down at lunch with him in order to get a job. Um, and that was like a two-day process. So it was, yeah, it was pretty full on. Um, and he's quite an aloof character. So... I would have everything. I remember exactly what I did. Like I did a comfy piece of uh, salmon, wild salmon, and a, like a beurre blanc um, of caper and tomato and saffron and that into it on like wilted spinach. And at the time, it was very trendy. I had a little bit of deep fried leek on the top, julienne of deep fried leek. <clears throat> but I was trying to get this dish perfect, but it, they'd say, okay, he's coming at 12 o'clock, so have everything ready. So I'd get it all ready. 
then he would he would get delayed to like one o'clock. He'd come in and he'd leave, and I was just like, "Fuck, this was just going on for ages." But anyway, so finally got the opportunity and, and sat down with him. The first thing he did is he picked up the deep fried leek off the top and threw it on the side. What is this shit? <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, he he enjoyed the rest of it, so um, he thought that garnish was just a bit unnecessary. But no, but so I ended up getting I stayed at Le Manoir for sort of two or three years and ended up becoming quite good friends with Raymond and still sort of keep in touch with him to this day. But the first probably year, I actually hated it in there. I just wanted to leave because it was just so unfriendly and cold and intense and hard. And, you know, I was still probably only, not sure, maybe 20 or 21 or something at that time. And I just didn't like it. I just wanted to leave. And then, because it was sort of, especially back in the 90s, it was such a, a revered place where people would go work there for a year, get a bit of paper and then leave just to say that they worked there. So there was no real closeness or because people just sort of churn and burn. But after I stayed for a year, then I started to get a lot more respect and, and then Raymond would sort of pick the people that he knew wanted something. And he would sort of gravitate towards them. And it was when he started spending some time with me sort of teaching, you know, sources and stocks and just we sort of had this really wonderful connection with him and and his right-hand man at the time, um, Alex Mackay as well. Yeah, then I just started to love it, absolutely love it. And it just became so addictive, that learning and just pushing myself as much as I could to learn, you know. It seems funny looking back because everything seemed to be in a rush you know, like trying to learn as much as you could, as quickly as you could. I'm not quite sure what the rush was about back then, but, um, you know, you'd work pretty much every day. And then on my holidays, he'd send me over to France to do stagiaires. You know, I remember going to the kitchens of Guy Savoir and Pierre Gagné, which were incredible and so very, very different as well. Like it was the Guy Savoir experience was just magical. Well, they both were, but very different. Like when I went to Gisawa, it was such a friendly kitchen and I couldn't really speak any French. I was a little bit of kitchen French and enough to sort of, you know, get me by in a few rude words and that sort of stuff. But um, but they were just so accepting and friendly and went out of their way to help and try and speak English to me. And, you know, I was on the pass doing, pouring the soup for the little amuse-bouche and, you know, it was a wonderful experience. But then when I went to Pergenia, that was probably one of the most insane manic kitchens I've ever worked in. So he had just, his, I think it was his three-star had just closed down um, in Saint-Etienne and then he'd opened in Paris. So he had got, he was sitting on two Michelin stars and he was pushing for his third. Um, and it was like, it was, it was a very small kitchen and there was like 20 chefs in there, but they weren't like chefs. They were like men who were like 30, 35, have been cooking for a long time and just extremely talented, but they were on a fucking possessive mission. It was crazy. It was, And I, I just felt so uncomfortable. What is it that you um, took away from your time in, in Europe? Yeah, a lot. I think probably – the generosity of people in the end. I think guys like Raymond Blanc taking the time to share and teach and learn and be patient left a massive uh, thing with me. And and same with um, Alex Mackay. 
he was sort of Raymond's right-hand man behind the scenes, doing the cookery schools, writing the books and all that sort of stuff. But he, I remember when I was, I'd, I'd sort of done every section at the manoir and, and I think it was Junior Sue by the time I left, but I hadn't done much on the larder and I had a couple of months left, but Alex sort of took me under his wing and, and basically went through the whole repertoire of terrines and taught me everything, like the salmon on jelly, terrine bully bays, woodcock terrine, you know, everything. And I don't know, I guess that sort of stuff just left a massive, and, and also in Australia as well with Liam, you know, like, just uh, the time that these guys take to share everything they've got with you. I think that was probably the biggest thing I learned. And it's what I get the biggest buzz out of today is, you know, sort of giving guys opportunity or sharing or, you know, all that sort of stuff is, is I think, just so important. Well, tell us a bit about that time at Bank because you returned to Australia and Liam Tomlin's Bank just absolutely you know, took the dining scene by storm and the alumni of like Matt Kemp, Brett Graham, Colin Fasnage, Warren Turnbull, yourself. It's just incredible. What was it actually like being in that team? Yeah, no, it was exactly that. It was incredible. You know, it was sort of like being part of the first 15 or whatever. It was, you know, like you're just surrounded by such amazing talent. And, you know, I think credit has got to be given to Liam for that because he, you know, like good people get attracted to good people. And, you know, all these fabulous, fabulous chefs and craftsmen wanted to go and work for the best and they wanted to go and refine their skills that they'd learned overseas and adapt it to Australia. And there was, at the time, there was no one better, you know, cooking in Australia than, than Liam, you know. Um, but even before Bank, like when I was at Cassis, like to give you an example, like we did, we were open Monday to Friday, right? And Liam used to go in uh on Saturdays and do the pass on his day off up at level 41. And there's times when I was in the Cassis kitchen where I was learning the saucier section and it was so busy. You'd have, we'd have to do like 16 sauces from scratch every single morning, you know, roasting bones, doing all that sort of stuff, caramelizing the meat, onion, shallots, reducing, doing, it was fucking hectic. Like the amount of pans you'd have on just for one sauce, you know, times that by 16. But when I was learning, like I, I went in at half five in the morning to get set up for lunch. And the other person who was in the kitchen showing me what to do at half five was Liam, you know? So that's how passionate, dedicated he was as a leader. So I think, you know, going back to your bank reference, that's why there were so many good people there because they wanted to work for the best and, you know, you want to test yourself against the best, but it was, yeah, it was fucking hard. Like Liam was a big taskmaster and, you know, he, he was so disciplined, um, but such a lovely, warm, nurturing man at the same time, you know? And I think it's probably what we all craved was to be pushed really hard and, you know, pushed on one hand, but sort of loved on the other side, you know? It was a really good combination that he had. The Cass was you know, your first restaurant and you had it for over a decade. It started as a small site uh, in Surrey Hills and uh, later um, opened it in the CBD. Tell us about the early days and pulling that restaurant together, what it was like. Yeah, I think it was sort of, I'd come back from Europe and yeah, I'd spent a couple of years or a year or so at bank. And then by that time, I think I was about 25 or 26 and I've been cooking for about 10 years or 11 years or whatever. 
and I was just, I couldn't work for anyone else again. Like I just, you know, after spending this time with Liam and Raymond Blanc and the guys in Paris and I was just had so much shit in my head that I just wanted to cook, you know, like I wanted to take these guys, you know, cause it wasn't a, necessarily a case of sort of taking people's ideas. It was working with chefs to really try and understand their philosophy and what's behind the recipes and then sort of trying to adapt that into your own style. And so I guess I was just at the point where I just had to get that out. Like it was, you know, when you sort of like a painter or a creative, it was just inside and it was really frustrating me. So I, I had no money cause I've been working, you know, as a, shit kicker for 10 years but I managed to scrape together about $80,000 at the time to open Beckass and you know that was everything that was from um, you know accountant fees to the lease to you know my mum and dad come over from New Zealand and help paint and put carpet down and all that sort of stuff and buy a new stove and you know so I just scraped and borrowed as much as I could to get the doors open and then when they opened there was about eight dollars left in the bank so <laughs> luckily we were sort of uh busy from from now but it's interesting you know like being so like then you sort of feel like you know it all you know because you've been cooking around the world and all that sort of stuff but you know looking back now you know so young and just having hardly any life experience let alone business experience or anything you know and you just sort of go in there to cook and as a, as a platform to express and, you know, and, and I was fortunate, like actually through Brett Graham, met, um, James Metcalf, who, who was uh, the head chef at the time. We worked together on Beckass for, we worked together for, yeah, over a decade. Um, but no, it was intense, you know, like that was crazy. We were only open for dinner, but we'd be starting at 7 a.m., driving down to the fish market, buying fish, going out to the vegetable markets. Wow. Yeah, it was fucking mental. Absolutely mental, but everything from scratch, from boning everything out we possibly could, from little baby pigs trotters to, you know. The relationship with the suppliers we had then was, was insane, you know. Like I remember Anthony Paharich would be speaking to him, at, you know, Vix every other day about getting beautiful, amazing sweetbreads and boning out oxtails and all sorts of crazy stuff. But it was just complete disregard, I guess, for your own welfare and physical health and all that stuff. It was just purely, it was very obsessive, you know, just to try and do amazing, amazing food. Um, what was it like for you being able to put your own creations on the plate finally? What, what did that feel like? Yeah, it was magical in one sense. You always feel slightly tortured because there's, you know, you always want more. So you're never quite satisfied. You get happy with stuff, but you know, you, you, you always never quite have enough time to get it perfect or, you know, there's always little issues with bits of produce or there's just, there's always, you know, when you're a little bit unsatisfied with things. So you sort of, it was a real, but I guess having the outlet there and, and working with the team of James and, and the other guys was just, you know, it was beautiful. It was an amazing time. It really was. But, you know, it's such a unsustainable a business model and an unsustainable lifestyle model as well. You know, like you see, you get a glimpse into that and you, you understand why there's so many issues with, you know, addiction and mental health and everything else in the industry over the years. Cause it's just, you just can't sustain that type of, uh, you know, work. It's crazy. 
the original restaurant was in a beautiful corner spot in Surrey Hills and you um, moved the restaurant to the city and that site became uh, Assiet under um, Warren Turnbull. Um, well, what triggered the move to the city and, and what changed for you with the restaurant with that move? I think probably my whole career up to that point, I've been working in fine dining restaurants around the world. And I think my goal was always to create the world-class restaurant. And the cast in its first instinct was, I guess, a bit of a trial, you know, to see if we could do it and if we wanted to do it or whatever. And, um, but just so restricted, like it was a tiny, tiny, tiny little kitchen, you know, barely had a cool room, it was not the type of place that we could really develop into a world-class restaurant. Um, so we'd sort of had an eye. We, we did at some point talk to the landlord about potentially, you know, beautifying it and extending it and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, we're having those discussions. We're also looking elsewhere. Um, and then the spot came up in the in the city um, on Clarence Street there and sort of having the multi-level, much bigger kitchen, all that sort of stuff. And it enabled us to, you know, at that time we were buying whole carcasses and breaking them all down and, you know, we had the capacity there to dry age, you know, some of the primal cuts, the secondary cuts. We could make burgers and sell them at Plan B at the little burger joint, you know, next door. So it enabled us to do a lot more. Um, you know, we baked everything fresh. We sort of had a shift that would work overnight baking everything and, you know, it's where it's sort of, again, we expanded the team and, and got to work again with a whole bunch of incredible chefs with Monty and Jackie Kaludrovic and, you know, Michael Robinson and Tom Didman and heaps of really, really talented chefs. It was, you know, it was, it was an amazing time. Well, the restaurant ended up being named in the top 100 restaurants in the world at one best restaurant, restaurant of the year. You won chef of the year um, and incredible accolades um, what, 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 what are your fond memories of, of the restaurant? What did you take from those days? Yeah, a whole lot of stuff. I think the probably at its heart was the team and just, you know, like all of that, those sort of accolades you mentioned, that's all because of being able to work with an amazing bunch of guys. And, you know, I guess in my mind, it was more sort of creating a platform for a lot of talented chefs to, you know, to really sort of hone their craft and that sort of thing. So, that's probably one of the biggest memories, but also at the time, you know, we started doing all the producer lunches and, and having a really strong connection to a lot of uh, producers and um, sort of developed that a lot as well. Actually at the original Becass site from when we did the first Becass cookbook, um, which was insane. I mean, that was like a, I just look back at the way we did that and it was so stupid, but I mean, it was so rewarding, but you know, it took us, three years to do that book because I, I had the idea for it and I was just a fucking nobody so I couldn't go to a publisher and go I want to do this book you know they'd just be like go away so I thought I'd self-publish it so I sort of spoke to a graphic designer amazing photographer Steve Brown um, and we would go and say would save up enough money would fly down to wherever say Port Lincoln go out all on a fishing boat. So I'd bring the photographer to chefs, would look to interview. I had uh, Kirsty to Gary, who was a journalist. She'd come with us, would interview the people, stay with them, you know, talk to the producers, play with the food, would come back, would do photo shoots in the restaurant, 
would would document that whole chapter on this on a particular producer, then would pay everyone, then would save up enough money, and then would do it again. You know, a few months later, for you know, would go somewhere else and do it again. And then after three years, I had like I think it was sixteen chapters. Spent about eighty thousand dollars <laughs> putting this book together. Had an amazing manuscript, but then still didn't have a publisher. Um, and then everyone just sort of looked at it and said, that's amazing, but it's, you know, it's not really, that's what we do. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> then I, I, I probably ended up with like the most expensive book in history with just one copy, <laughs> but then, um, it was a Hardy Grant, um, and their team down there, which are just fabulous. They just took it on a sort of a po- uh, co-publishing deal and we managed to get it published thankfully. But, um, you know, I guess that's, that was a big highlight. I guess as well, been able to probably a long answer to the question, but, you know, I guess one sort of working with the producers and the suppliers and really using that book and that restaurant as a platform to showcase incredible produce. Cause you know, at that time, like particularly when I come back from Europe, there's this whole rhetoric about how amazing the produce was in Europe and how shit it was in Australia. And I was just like, fuck you like, yes, the produce is amazing in Europe, but in Australia, it's amazing as well. But you know, at that time it probably wasn't as clear or easy to find as it is now you know and there's less artists and producers and stuff you sort of have to dig through the layers so i think then it, it was a great opportunity to to showcase a lot of that in a, in a beautiful book and in a nice restaurant you ended up moving Picasso uh to westfield and um a little bit later it ended up closing what, what sort of impact did the closure of Picasso have on you yeah that no, was huge like in so many different ways, obviously, financially, you know, we lost absolutely everything. Um, mentally, it, it was, yeah, it was huge. Um, but I think with those sort of things, you just have to be very raw, very honest, and take the ego out of it and just look at all the sort of reasons why and, and learn from it and try and correct those mistakes. And, you know, I think as if you sit there and try and blame this or look at this or fucking, you know, blah, blah, then it's just, you know, you just deflect and you don't, you just keep making the same mistake. So, but no, it was, it was, um, it was a, the most brutalist time of my life, but it was probably the time of my life where I, I learned the most probably about myself and, and, you know, the people around me and, you know, you sort of, you soon find out, um, who your mates are pretty quick. <laughs> um, but yeah, but you know, and, and there was some amazing people. I learned so many lessons, Hucks, you know, like particularly there's some wonderful people who were, who were there for me at the time. And, you know, I know I now will be there for so many people, you know, like in their time of need, you know, you can kick people when you're down or you can go by their side and hold their hand. And, you know, I remember one guy, um, you just ring every couple of days and just say, how are you? You okay? And be like, yeah, all right. And that was it. You know, you need anything? No, I'm okay. So it was incredible, you know, just to get those sort of calls from people. It was, it was a tough time, but I think it, you know, I, I guess you just have to take, I mean, what sort of got me through, I guess, was the kids and just wanting to be there for them and be a good person to them and be a good father. I think to them and, you know, 
I'd sort of, I'd lost my dad not too long before that, about a couple of years, a year or two before that. I was really hard and I lost my mum a couple of years after. So it was like, it was a really, really brutal time in my life. But, you know, it's interesting because you sort of look back and all the stories I've been telling about Europe and chefs and all that sort of stuff. It, it is a very selfish lifestyle that you live, you know, when you're sort of quite possessive about so I'm obsessive about your career and, and, you know, it is quite a selfish sort of way to live, I think, and, and sort of having a lot more balance, I think, now in my life and, you know, being able to be, you know, a good friend to some good people and, and be a good father to my kids is, you know, very, very important. Well, these days, um, you're bringing all of your incredible influence and skills and and background and knowledge to concept hospitality and being involved with some pretty incredible projects like Mr. Percy um, and the new one, Bar Cleveland, which is, uh, um, well, was a renowned late-night drinking haunt in Sydney, but it looks like it's changing quite dramatically under your watch. Um, tell us about what your role has been. Yeah, no, it's interesting, actually. I mean... Uh... I guess what I love doing now is just working with enthusiastic, creative, fun, you know, passionate people. And the guys at Overlow Hotel Group are, are just fabulous, you know, great foresight there and, and spending a lot of time at the Harbourview Hotel on the rocks as well. We're sort of undergoing quite a extensive change of direction there. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, at Bar Cleveland, like we're building a new concept on the first level, which hopefully should be ready sort of mid-August. Um but it's exciting, and I guess it's sort of now with concept, it's, it is looking at exactly that, and that's sort of redefining concepts. And, you know, I guess to me in my past, it's always just been about food, and I guess as I've evolved, and I, probably the, the project that really sort of stood out was the transformation we did at um, Centennial and, you know, taking an iconic sort of pub and turning it into just such a beautiful, beautiful venue where – you know, like getting everything right is so difficult, but so, so important, you know, where food is, you know, one spoken or in the wheel or whatever, but, you know, getting the right type of music and the right quality of sound and the right type of lighting at the right level and the right smell and the right people and the right smiles. And, you know, it's just, there's so much to get right. And I think for, for an, you know, I guess that's probably what I try to do with concept is, you know, work with owners and, and operators to to assist in, in that area. And I think, you know, the two big areas I think where there's so much potential in Australia at the moment is, is pubs um, and also in the lifestyle hotel sector. You know, I think food and beverage in hotels in Australia in the last few decades has just been an absolute fucking joke. And, you know, it's slowly starting to change a little bit now, like Accor introducing some really, really good brands into the market. Overlow, you know, are really leading the way there as well. And, and over the next few years, we're going to see some really exciting uh, lifestyle brands coming into the market, which, you know, would just so overdue for in Australia. Um, so I think those sort of spaces are, are exciting, you know. Well, as someone that's reached the absolute pinnacle that you can in the industry, but it was also been one that's had to adapt and evolve 
to changing circumstances and alter one's career? What sort of advice would you give to young professionals out there that, you know, have dealt with challenges in the last year and a half and are looking for inspiration? I think a big thing, well, probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned is patience. You know, like I think back in the early Bacast days, I don't know why, you know, well, not even then, but even before that, it just, everything just seemed to be, I don't know if I was in a rush, rushing away from something or trying to run towards something, but everything just, you know, was seemed rushed and, and trying to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible to try and get somewhere. And I think my biggest lesson is just patience and, you know, you've got your whole life and I think patience and sustainability, and I think you have to look after yourself as number one. In, and I'm, I don't necessarily mean it in a selfish way, but I mean, in order, you know, like I know for me, like in order to be a good dad to my kids or a good mentor to chefs, like I have to be in a good place myself, you know, to get up and go to the gym and be physically fit and mentally fit. Like I've got to be in that good place. So I think, you know, patience and, and looking after yourself and whether, you know, whatever floats your boat, whether it's, exercising or meditation or ice baths or fuck whatever, you know, but I think you've got to be in, in good physical and, and mental health to be able to, you know, do the right thing by your family or your employees or your work colleagues or whatever, you know. Well, it's great advice, mate, and we're absolutely honoured to have you on uh, Deep in the Weeds today to share your story. I know you've got so many more uh, to share. Uh, perhaps we'll catch up with you again later in the year and um, no, I'd love to, mate. talk a bit more about your career. But, um, mate, uh, please uh, keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and congratulations to you, mate. I know your podcast that you're doing has been so valuable to a lot of people out there who have been doing it tough over the last year or so. So congrats to you, man. Thank you, Justin. Take care and we'll talk soon. Pleasure. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.